Hi all, welcome back to the Lake Podcast. I'm your host Karthik Nachi. This episode is a packed one. It looks at a really important and innovative book that unpacks a curious puzzle. Why states sometimes work with, negotiate with, and establish workable compacts with armed non-state actors in their countries, and why sometimes they don't, resulting in full-blown war. How can this variation be explained. University of Chicago political scientist Paul Stanton argues that ideology matters in explaining the difference or the perception of ideological threats posed by these armed groups determines the government's response and subsequent interactions with these groups. The book's a major conceptual contribution to the work of political violence because it allows us to understand map and explain the strategies and approaches that governments specifically in this case in south asian governments take with armed non-state actor groups the book's contributions can also hopefully help us explain and disentangle the factors that keep certain regions like the india's northeast particularly restive and volatile over time enough with me here's paul stanland on ordering violence explaining armed group state relations from conflict to cooperation published by cornell university press in 2021 Uh, great. So, Paul, thank you so much for for doing this and coming on the podcast. Um, I want to start by asking: This is your second book. How is the second book different from the first? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the answer is harder. I would say uh, I'm not sure how your experience is right now as you work on your second book. But the first book comes out of a dissertation, and it's like there's something there already. To get it done, you had to have enough. finish that there's something there and then you build on it you revise you refine you workshop it you know whereas the second project is you're just kind of started from scratch in some ways but you're doing that while also teaching try to do other research you know in my case uh you know I have two kids over the course of writing my second book um advising service you have a job and you don't have kind of the big blocks of time that you do in graduate school and i think you know grad school has lots of challenges and difficulties but you it provides a really unusual opportunity to just have time and time gets harder and harder to kind of carve out at least in my case as i got older and so it was a a more protracted process i think the early the very earliest glimmers of this project i think were in 2011 maybe even very late 2010 is when i first kind of like was playing with some ideas and the book didn't actually get published until kind of november or so in 2021 so and the the kind of real focus of research and writing started fall of 2013 so like you know the the short answer is it was much longer and it took a lot more kind of hustle and effort um over a much longer period of time um that said i think with a a first book usually there's a little bit more time pressure it's kind of like oh i got to get this out you don't want to sit on it too long second books maybe there's a little bit more room to maneuver which can be nice a little bit more breathing mm-hmm. space um so so those are some differences that come to mind is there is there a, is there a collective 
uh, the tissue between your first and second books conceptually. The, the, the first one, if I recall, looked at insurgencies in South Asia, right? Yeah. And this one, it looks like you're stepping back up a little bit more and asking a much bigger question. That's right. I think to the extent there, so there is connective tissue and there's also kind of gaps. Um, the first book was much more kind of focused on specific dynamics of insurgent group structure, organization, trajectories. Um, you know, probably a, a tighter research design, more nitty gritty. Um, and that, you know, I said what I had to say about that. And then, as you say, I think this was an effort to kind of zoom up to think about some of the much bigger questions at play of nationalism and historical change. And, and at the same time, to start thinking more broadly about the nature of interactions between governments and armed actors. The first book was very much in a world of kind of classical civil wars, insurgency, counterinsurgency. The second book, you know, includes that stuff, but also is thinking or you know, tried to think about a much broader range of dynamics, including ceasefires, electoral violence, militia politics, armed actors that are hard to categorize as, you know, any of these things that are kind of doing their own thing and are not necessarily part of a traditional insurgent, counterinsurgent kind of struggle. So I think the connective tissue is around violence, order, conflict, South Asia. But the, the goal, at least, of the second book was a much bigger picture kind of sense of how we think about political order and kind of what some of the, the variables driving the variation in it you know, happen to be, um, both in general and then more much more specifically in, in South Asia. So I want to get to that variation. And as you mentioned, there there's a lot of different... Uh, dynamics between the state and the armed orders and the armed groups uh, that you track in South Asia. That, that there's war, open war sometimes, there's negotiation, collaboration, um, and there's a lot of variation, as you mentioned. Can you just give us a sense of what led you down this path? Were you tracking these different dynamics empirically and found a, found a gap with what the literature was saying, or how did that play out? Yeah, so this is one of these kind of contingent things. I was I think I now, you know, my sense of time and space is very hazy now um, as I get deeper into middle age. But I think it was sometime in the middle of my first year as an assistant professor. I was like, oh, I need another article project. You know, I need to start writing things that are not just my dissertation. And I thought, oh, you know, the Uppsala conflict data program has this data set of conflict dynamics in South Asia. Of, of Sorry, not just in South Asia, of all, all around the world where they track base. It's like a data set of a particular kind of civil war or internal conflict. So I like opened that up. I was sitting at home. It was an Excel spreadsheet. And I was looking at it. I was like, oh yeah, there's a lot, a lot of good stuff here. And then I was like, huh, you know, some of these conflicts I know pretty well. And the way they're kind of being coded in terms of the data don't really line up with what, like kind of how I think about them. And that was kind of a curious, like, so what's going on here? And at first I was like, oh, these quantitative data people don't know what they're talking about. Like, oh, you know, it's gotta be coding errors and whatever. But that, you know, as over the next few years, as I dug into it, that wasn't really what was going on. They were doing their job. It's just that their job was to measure a particular way of thinking about civil wars, which is that in a given year, there's some threshold number of identifiable battle deaths between a government and some non-state armed group that are fighting over something, right? Totally reasonable. Like it's not in any way like an incompetent or crazy way to be thinking about what this stuff is. The problem is that leads to some, some gaps in some cases. It works really well for like, you know, very clear, unambiguous conflicts like the Islamic State, right, in, in Syria and Iraq. It's like there's a lot of fighting. It's very clear what they disagree about. There are ceasefires and really negotiations. There's no real ambiguity. Fine. So that that's important, right? 
But in a lot of the world, that's not really what, what conflict exclusively looks like, right? Um, so we have periods of ceasefires. We have even between nominally insurgent groups in the state. We have low level conflicts that, you know, something is going on, but not that many people are getting killed, right? We have armed groups that are not fighting the government at all, right? They may be working with the government very closely or in kind of like a live and let live, like we're going to, you know, run drugs from this border area and, you know, leave us alone and we'll leave you alone, right? And so the, these things kind of were getting intermeshed together. Or, I'm sorry, I should say these things often are intermeshed together in conflicts, especially over time. So I started kind of getting into this and thinking like, all right, so is there a world in which we could actually conceptualize these outcomes? And so that started an early conceptual article I wrote. And then I kind of started pivoting into like, could we measure these things empirically? And both of them had their challenges. I would say empirically measuring was like a huge hassle and contributed substantially to why the book took so long. Um, but it, that, that the starting point was looking at someone else's data and saying like, this seems off. Why is it off? And it's not off because they're doing something that's intrinsically wrong or problematic. It's off because the world I'm seeing has a lot more stuff going on than the world that they're measuring, if, if that makes sense. I, I wanted to get to the methodology question later, but since you just bring it up, maybe just talk a little bit about that, about that data set, the armed daughters data set, and how you coded these different outcomes before you could track yeah. them and then measure them. So the, the goal, the, the motivation was, you know, I started presenting some of this work and talking about particular cases. And the reaction was, you know, generally fairly positive, like, oh, this is interesting. But, you know, these seem, maybe these are like quirky cases, right? Maybe they're idiosyncratic, they're, you know, what we call outliers. And, you know, you found some cool stuff, but it's not really, it's not telling us that much about the kind of most conflicts, right? And that was a critique I, I take seriously. And I think it's true that it doesn't tell us that much about some conflicts that are fairly straightforward. There's just a lot of fighting and one side loses and one side wins. But I wanted to get a better sense of how well it described this kind of spectrum from close cooperation, what I call alliances, to these like very intense total wars, how we would, how we could characterize that empirical variation. So I started trying to, I got some grant money. I was very lucky on that front, hire research assistants. Um, and I came up with this kind of initially very naive and uh, overly optimistic, let's call it coding scheme, where it would be like, oh, we're going to measure these armed orders. That's what I call these relationships on an annual basis between you know each armed group and, and the central government they're dealing with. And we can measure a bunch of other things too. Are they using illicit resources? You know, are they engaged in electoral politics? Are they governing? Are they doing all this other stuff? And it turns out that just especially using secondary sources from Chicago with a bunch of like 23-year-old RAs, some of whom were from or studied South Asia, but others of whom like this was how they were paid their rent, right? Um, just measuring the armed borders themselves was like really very challenging, much less all of these other variables. And so eventually I think where we ended up is, you know, plausibly, broadly measuring some pretty interesting and important descriptive patterns and beginning to move toward very caveated, more inferential questions like, well, all right, well, how in this particular country or this case, how do different dynamics of ethnicity or religious mobilization play out, right? Or what are time trends in different cases? And so I think that's valuable. I think it's it, it's been pretty useful. I, I enjoyed it. I think I, I got a lot that I wanted out of it, but you know, definitely not everything that I thought I'd be able to get. Um, and one thing I did, because the sourcing is really tricky and there's a lot of ambiguity often in, in a lot of these cases, like 
the data sets available, the coding notes are all available. If other people want to go in there and make it better and say, you know, you guys got this wrong, my updated version says this, and this does or doesn't change the findings, like that's all for the good. Um, I think of it as kind of like a first step possibly in, in a broader research agenda rather than like the last word. And and I must say that this data set is available for scholars everywhere to use and access, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, it's online. On my yeah, yeah, it links to a top folder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there, there is one quote here early on, which I think really captures the book. And it's, it's great when there's one line which captures a book. <laughs> it kind of makes it easier for, for the reader. And here it's, it's an I quote here, this book politicizes political violence. Um, how are politics and violence connected? So this was a probably slightly polemical reaction to a trend that I noticed in a lot of the internal conflict literature, um, which really kind of got going in the early 2000s in its kind of modern form. A lot of really good stuff, but it tended, kind of there are two different tendencies that I thought were a little problematic. One was to really disaggregate and say like, well, the real interesting variations like between this village and that village, why is there violence here this day, but not here in this day? Or, you know, and that's really, that's very important. But it often kind of like got so nitty gritty that the explanations were about very tactical dynamics. Like, well, there were more troops here in this day or like it's near a highway, things that are not trivial, not unimportant. But if you went to somebody and said like, what is the insurgency in Kashmir about? It's not really a, like about tactical maneuvers back and forth. Right. Those are part of it. Insurgency, counterinsurgency at that level, very important. There's a lot going on, no doubt. But you'd want to know something about nationalism. You'd want to know something about ideology. You'd want to know something about how governments are thinking about, like, how much is this territory worth to us? and Why is it important to us? Right. And so so that was one trend, kind of excessive disaggregation I was trying to kind of push back against. And the other was kind of swinging the other direction, like sweeping generalizations across countries about like what states want. Right. And so, again, some very important, well done research looking at, you know, how governments respond to armed groups or armed challengers that I think had some perfectly reasonable things to say that were important. But then you start looking at particular countries and it's like, well, do the, does this government care about this? Unclear. Does it care about this thing more than this other thing? No. Whereas its neighbor might care about that thing more than the thing that its neighbor cares about. Right. And starting to think more contextually and historically about kind of threat perceptions, political goals, understandings of like what counts as political and what doesn't, and then conditional on that, kind of what counts as politically problematic and what doesn't, right? So, you know, I live in the United States. There are like guns everywhere here, right? And large parts of the political system don't view that as a political problem and that they don't view gun owners as like challenging the writ of the state. You know, other people are, are much more concerned about it, but like that is not how most of the rest of the world sees this question. Right. So we wouldn't want to make some sweeping claim like states care about guns in this way, X. And that is the basis of our theories of how governments interact with, you know, non-state firearms or something that just wouldn't capture what's actually happening. Um, and so I wanted to kind of add some contextuality and specificity to some of these discussions to say, well, you know, these different places are coming from different histories and we can still compare them. We can still think theoretically and conceptually about them in a way that lets us talk about them together rather than say, well, India is unique. We can just just study India. Or, you know, Pakistan is Pakistan. There's no point in comparing it to anywhere else. I don't, I just have never found that to be the approach I like, but kind of striking this, this in-between balance of like, well, we can compare, we can be systematic, but we can also really take seriously that a lot of these are constructed and con contingent perceptions of kind of what, what is good politics, what is bad politics, what is threatening, what is unproblematic, what is somewhere in between. And so that's how I think about what politics is, right? Like what you're looking for and what you're afraid of, what you want and what you fear. Um, and so I tried to kind of get 
closer to that in, in this project. So the idea that the state has a monopoly over violence, um, that's not something we should accept off the cuff, right? But, so, but something that we should, as your book shows, kind of measure, get a sense of what the context is like and how different actors perceive violence and, and why they rely on violence to achieve their, their objectives. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there are a couple of different ways to think about this. One is just straight up, is there a monopoly of violence or not? And, you know, sometimes there is a pure monopoly of violence in maybe North Korea. I don't know enough about it. Most places, things are a little murkier. And then, so that's that's one thing that you get into quickly is, you know, there are places in which armed, non-state armed actors are playing important roles in governance, sometimes as part of mainstream politics, right? If you think about Iraq over the last, you know, 20 years since the American intervention, invasion, occupation, mess, um, both Kurdish and Shia political parties also are closely linked to non-state armed capacity, sometimes while they're also ruling within the state, right? So like, what what is that? It's not the monopoly of violence. It's also not open Hobbesian chaos and civil war where everybody's fighting each other all the time. It's some blend of these different things, right? And then Weber's discussion of monopoly violence also includes this word legitimate violence, a monopoly on legitimate violence, right? And that begs a further question, which is, well, what, what counts as legitimate violence, right? And so that opens this, again, going back to your previous question about like what counts as politics, what counts as legitimate violence in a particular context, and what counts as illegitimate violence? Um, and I think that varies a lot uh, across time and space in ways that are you know, worth exploring. Going back to the American case, and something I tried to do in the book a little bit is not, I mean, the empirics are largely about South Asia, but at different points, especially the early kind of theoretical and intro chapters and a little of the conclusion, I also wanted to think about this outside of the context you know, kind of your standard civil war places, you know, which are generally in the global South post 1945, but also like the American case or, you know, how the Japanese state dealt with, dealt with like left-wingers and the Yakuza in the sixties, like these places we don't think of as sites of classic political violence, at least, you know, the U.S. now, I think we do much more than 10 years ago, um, but kind of to reverse the gaze a little bit and like, well, what makes violence legitimate or not legitimate in the U.S. versus the U.K. versus India versus Indonesia? You know, what forms of violence come to be seen as acceptable or at least tolerable rather than like completely beyond the pale? Uh, I want to get to the cases question later, but 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 before that, maybe just let's just cover the argument, which is quite simple. I mean, you argue that how states work with non, non-state armed groups is driven by the perceived ideological threats that these groups pose to the state. Uh, what do you mean by ideology um, and what are its dimensions? And why does ideology matter more relative to say the size, power, and the organization of these groups? Yeah, so the book mostly focuses, as you say, on ideology as this driving big picture variable. It does talk about what I call this like functional, you know, operational dynamic that can kind of shape the ways in which uh, you get these more specific orders. Um, but, but ideology is kind of one of the big theoretical kind of things I'm pushing for. So the argument here is that different regimes have different understandings of kind of the boundaries of and hierarchies within the given polity that they're they're seeking to achieve, right? And those will vary quite dramatically potentially from you know one regime that wants to create a classless Marxist-Leninist state that's characterized by a very particular set of understandings of the relationship between state and society, another that we can think of as kind of religious fundamentalist, another that is built around language, another that is kind of riven by left-right conflict over redistribution. So in the book, I focus primarily on three kinds of dimensions. Um, 
if I remember it right, uh, kind of religion, ethno-linguistic politics, and kind of classical left-right redistribution that we think of in, you know, modern Western Europe or, or places like that. And you could imagine different positions a government could adopt across these dimensions. And sometimes interesting combinations. So for instance, the uh, Sri Lankan Freedom Party in the 1950s through the 1970s fused together ultimately kind of a leftist socialist position on the redistributive dimension with this kind of Sinhalese Buddhist chauvinism on the ethno-linguistic and religious dimensions, right? Um, so you get this, this curious sometimes mixing and matching of, of these different positions or some movements that are, you know, very focused on religious, I'm sorry, on linguistic unity, but are very ambivalent or not particularly interested in religious questions or vice versa, right? Um, and so I look across these different dimensions, look at these different projects. And one of the things that I try to do, and this, this will get to some of the discussion of the cases, is think about the historical origins of those. And so looking back before these movements become governments, kind of how often very kind of weird, accidental, contingent ways, they generate these ideological projects kind of prior to taking power. Because it would be kind of unsatisfied to say like, oh, let's look at what the government cares about. Therefore, we will now explain what the government does based on what the government cares about. Like it's true, but not especially interesting. Whereas to say like, okay, in, I don't know, before democratization and countrywide, there were these three different strands that were battling with one another. Then one of them wins out at democratization and becomes the new reigning project. But here are the paths that were not taken. Or under colonialism, like there were different conceptions of nationalism in this, in this environment. And for a variety of reasons, one wins out, but the others don't go away. Maybe one kind of comes back later, right? I think this is very much the Indian case. And, and in some ways we can think about the evolution of Israel and kind of Israeli nationalism as, as manifested in ruling governments um, as well, right? So that's kind of how I think about these ideological projects, looking at where they come from and then tracing them over time before they're in power, after they get into power, sometimes once they lose power and looking at shifts in armed orders that are associated with those changes in regime ideology. So the one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading it is, is what happens when, when these groups and the ideology of these groups and the government, it, they align sometimes, but not all the times. Um, what happens when there's, when there's, there, there's an impasse, or there are differences, uh, and there's not much ideological cohesion uh, in some areas, but there are in others. And, and you do talk about this in the book. You, you, you call it this gray zone where things get messier, murkier um what happens then so that's that that's exactly right there and there are lots of these cases that are kind of in between and like oh my gosh what do we do with this right maybe they agree on this they disagree on that so i borrow from a, a sociologist who wrote about kind of very different contexts, but uses this phrase kind of these gray zone dynamics so that's actually where these more nitty-gritty questions about like relative power micro tactical dynamics become more important where ideology is kind of like you're in this in-between space you're not trying to wipe this group out but you've got some, you know serious differences with it and so that's where we see these bargains over kind of like all right what do what do we the group want what does the government want right there's not that much political threat but there's also underlying political conflict and so we see these two different states of the world emerge i argue broadly again this is very like there are lots of exceptions nuances to be to be super clear one is they get kind of labeled as undesirables who, you know, you don't need to hunt them down to destroy them, but you're trying to contain, to keep a lid on these groups. And the state represses to a certain level, but if the group continues to exist and do some stuff, it's kind of priced into the government's internal security calculus. You can kind of live with these guys causing trouble up to a certain level, right? Or 
And that's when there isn't this kind of tactical overlap where the groups and the state can get some kind of mutual benefits from working together. When there is that tactical overlap, I call these these um, business partner relationships that are, you know, they're ideologically kind of muddled. But, you know, maybe the government doesn't care that much about a monopoly of violence in particular areas, politically marginal, and they're willing to cut a deal, some kind of ceasefire with an armed group. And the armed group may be able to get something tangible from that, right? Continue to extract resources, continue to survive, continue to recruit. Maybe the armed group thinks like this gives us a chance to just see how things play out over time, right? It's not the deal we want, but it's better than the alternatives. And so when there's that kind of mutual interest in cooperation, we can see these limited cooperation orders. Um, and you know, one inspiration for this is looking at Northeast India, also looking at parts of contemporary, especially post-1989 Myanmar, where like it's not that these groups in the state are necessarily doing peace or resolving politics at a macro level. Generally, when that happens, we see full-scale peace deals, we see shifts in ideological alignment by the armed groups, sometimes by the state, demobilization. That happens, it's super important. It doesn't happen very often. And these instead, these like limited cooperation orders tend to be, at least in the South Asian context, I think, you know, more common um, in this murky in-between space. Was it difficult to disentangle between interests and 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 ideology in those cases when you were trying to figure yeah. out? It gets really it gets messy really quickly. So mm -hmm. one thing I tried to do is kind of root ideology in these big historical processes mm -hmm. that are like up here. Sorry, you can't see me on the podcast, but my hand is up, right? Big, like national level, macro historical trends. Whereas nitty gritty, like, so So let me put it this way. The thing you would worry about is if interactions with armed groups were then fundamentally reshaping government's ideological visions and politics, right? Then you've got this very nasty, important and interesting, but kind of methodologically really tricky set of endogenous interactions. That sometimes happens to be super clear. And I can talk about kind of some examples of that. In the South Asian context, that's generally not what's happening. Generally, insurgent groups are much less powerful. They're kind of in relatively peripheral, whether social, political, geographic areas. And the state at the center kind of has its own politics that it's pursuing. Then it, and that's what, you know, there's a big ideological component that's somewhat distinct from these dynamics in these interactions with armed groups. Then on the ground, you have these more tactical interests, which like, we just want to stabilize this area. We don't want trouble out here. Right. Or, you know, we need to win an election. And do you think your armed group could help us out? And the armed group's kind of asking, well, what's in it for us? Right. And so nesting within these big ideological contexts, we get these more nitty gritty tactical interests. There are cases, I, I think South Asia works most of the time pretty well to see that differentiation. As I noted, though, there's cases when those things collapse into each other. Right. And it can be really hard to pull them apart. Um, this can lead to a methodological discussion later, but I think that's one reason why I tend to look at these kind of medium capacity states, not like failed states where everything is just mixed together in this kind of very hard to disentangle set of coalitions rising and falling and collapsing. But it said like there's a distinguishable state, it does stuff, it wants things, it's driven by these historically rooted movements that are like, they've got goals. And then they're interacting with these, these smaller generally armed actors that are still you know pretty important, but they're not reshaping national politics. So let's 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 talk let's talk a bit about South Asia now. Um, and you did mention it just 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 now as we, as we were speaking. Is it, all 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 the cases are South Asian: India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and Burma. Uh, and that's for a reason. All these states now are the products of the British Raj, um, and they've inherited that 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 colonial architecture, which has influenced how they've governed thereafter and how they've dealt with different kinds of groups that, that have emerged. 
So just give us a sense of what aspects of these, the, this context, there's these historical processes, which are quite similar, allow these groups to emerge and involve and then have the relationship that these governments have with them now. Yeah, so the way I thought about this was I was looking for a way of thinking about comparisons in which there were kind of relatively, there was kind of a shared period, obviously very different even under the Raj in different ways across these regions, to be super clear, but at least there was some kind of shared context that gives you a comparative lens to look across how even when dealing with broadly similar, again, there are differences, but dealing with the British colonial situation, right? Different movements are, are emerging and you can look across those start to figure out how they're trying to answer these big ideological questions about the nation, language, religion, redistribution. So you can compare in this pre-independence period that there's a fairly clear break point, right? 1947, 1948, depending on which country we're talking about. When all of a sudden now, oh, there's independence. And so new states kind of very quickly have to figure out their answers to these questions. Uh, it's not this, you know, if you looked at European state formation, it's over centuries, things are very hard to kind of parse out in, a, in, in such a clean way. Whereas here, there's this moment in which, okay, you're now the state. Go, you go make these decisions about how to use force. Now, there are often legacies of how the colonial, um, of colonial governance, especially around things like indirect rule, but they don't necessarily stick. There are conditions under which it basically the new regimes do what the British were doing. And there are other situations where they do something very, very different, right? Where they have a very different understanding of the politics they want to create than the British colonists did. So you see some pretty substantial shifts as well as some continuities. And you also see some pretty dramatic differences emerge fairly quickly across these countries, right? In kind of what is the reigning ideological project and what kinds of goals and fears does it identify, right? Um, sometimes it takes a little while. So in, in Sri Lanka, you get the early 1950s. It's like this kind of elite led, you know, you know, United National Party, not especially clear what it's up to in the early mid 50s. It's actually parts of it are much more worried about the left and like, you know, Ceylon trade unions of the Western province and like stuff that turns out to be almost totally irrelevant to what happens later. Uh, but then by 1956, you see kind of the foundational cleavages around this pairing of religion and, and language in Sri Lanka emerging as kind of the contours of ideological contestation. In Pakistan, there's kind of this question of like, who's a first class citizen and who's a second class citizen? And what are the roles, especially of religion and language in shaping that, as well as class and distribution? In India, you get the Congress Project, which has a set of different answers to a number of these questions, right? And in Burma, you get kind of a big mess for a while. Um, different, you know, the, the leadership, the, the, the AFPFL is kind of has a pretty clear set of answers around some of these questions, pretty hazy around others. And then you get a military regime coming in that offers a very clear set of disastrous, but clear answers to these questions around ideology. So within about a decade, you start to see these different trajectories emerging um, that are driven by these different regime projects. Some of them stick and become fairly I mean, Sri Lanka, you wouldn't say is stable, but the clear cle the core cleavages remain pretty stable over time from 1956. It's like, all right, what is the answer to this question about this pairing of language and religion? It drives a massive amount of conflict, but, but it remains sticky. In India, you've seen kind of a shift in the contours, I think it's fair to say, of Indian nationalism over the last, especially the last decade. But going back to the 1980s, as you know, obviously it's part of a much broader historical process. Uh, so sometimes you see a lot of continuity, sometimes you see change over time afterward. Um, so sorry, I'm now rambling about this, but it leads to some other interesting questions um, about like, okay, so what is South Asia specific about the story and what isn't, right? Does this map to other places? Does it not? I think 
I think sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, is my answer. I think something distinctive about the context is you get this pairing, this, this combination of relatively coherent central regimes and states. Pakistani military, the Indian security forces, you know, Sri Lanka by at least the 70s has a pretty big, develops, you know, a fairly coherent set of security apparatuses. The Burma, Burma uh, Burma's army is like a functional thing by the mid-1950s. It's not a failed state, like your classic you know, 1990s Liberia type case that a lot of civil war researchers focus on. On the other hand, there are all these non-state armed actors wandering around and that develop and kind of become, that generate themselves over time. And it's that interaction that then I think is somewhat specific to this context that you can see it in places like Colombia and, and Indonesia as well. These kind of like very large, sprawly, medium capacity regimes. Um. I'm just wondering, did you have to, were you, were you interested in tra tracking the interaction between law, um, especially colonial law, and how the state was or was interested in dealing with these groups at different times? Because I feel like that's another part of the legacy that we don't really talk much about, but that's used a lot. It, it depends on the context a lot. So mm -hmm. law is not an area I particularly focus on, but it becomes incredibly relevant very quickly, though, when you're talking about internal security and you know, what militaries and police are doing, how they're cracking down, how they're not. I think, so So I, this is not so much in the book, but I'm just going to riff for a second here. I think there, there are environments or contexts in which the legacy of law matters enormously. Free hands to security forces, very broad scope for restrictions on civil liberties um, in, in most of the region in ways that are often kind of justified legally using legal codes that, that you find under colonial rule. So there's definitely, you know, the, the role of police, for instance, I think, you know, these are not the most socially embedded, accountable actors. Um, so a lot of continuity is there. Also some differences, though, the, the goals to which these laws are being used are often quite different, like what order means and who should be in charge of controlling order are obviously fundamentally different than under colonial rule, where, you know, who, who, who rules the colonists rule, right, the British rule, ultimately from London, and, and so local actors have much less say than they do in a post-colonial environment in which they have their own politics and their own goals. And they're able to take this apparatus and repurpose parts of it and use it to their own to their own ends in ways that sometimes look quite different um, than under colonial rule, right? Um, so, so it's this kind of very complicated blend that in some areas looks very similar and in other, other areas looks, looks quite quite fundamentally different. I wanted to ask about in the India's north, Northeast, um, which to me looks like a microcosm of all the different armed orders that you present in the book. Um, there's a lot of um, subnational and and highly localized variations of armed order, I think, in that part of India. Um, and you do mention the book at some point that there are limited cooperation that, that, that that's occurring between the government and some of these groups as well. So talk to us about that and why we don't hear enough about that part of India as much as we should. So the Northeast is a place I will be blunt. I did not know nearly enough about and I still don't know nearly enough about. I'm not like an expert on the Northeast, um, but we need way more of those. Um, so I think there are a couple couple things, I guess, that I'll, so why don't we hear much about it? Well, part of it is political. It's very small compared to the rest of India. It's basically at some fundamental level, both politically and geographically quite peripheral to, you know, what would be called like some people in the Northeast would call like mainland India, right? Or back in India. Um, and so it, it doesn't kind of matter the way that state level politics in UP matter, for instance. It also doesn't touch on some of the really fundamental 
Hindu-Muslim cleavages that animate post-partition politics and pre-partition politics the way that Kashmir does, right? I mean, Kashmir has a very fundamentally different political status in just like Indian politics in general than the Northeast does. And yet we see extraordinary variation in the Northeast. I think what we don't see as much of are these really intense total wars, in part because of the political peripherality. There's space for the Indian government to be like, all right, we're going to have a suspension of operations agreement with these seven acronyms in Manipur that your average, even well-informed Indian citizen just knows basically nothing about and frankly probably doesn't care that much about. Whereas doing similar things in Kashmir would be, or, or Punjab in the 80s, would be really politically sensitive. It's like, I'm sorry, you're doing what with who? Uh, so there's more room to maneuver in the Northeast. And I think that's where you get a lot of this variation responding to very localized and tactical considerations where armed groups are sometimes willing to do business. Sometimes they're splintery and a part of the group is being absorbed into the state. Another part of the group decides to fight on and kind of radicalizes in response to splits. So you see this much more dynamic kind of variable set of armed orders in the Northeast. Um, and I think, you know, I think in, in, a, in a lot of ways it, in some, it, in a lot of ways, there's a lot more politics around counterinsurgency and insurgency in the Northeast than in Kashmir. In Kashmir, the answer is kind of generally the same, or some variant of the same, because the political, the political constraints, and also the political goals are very different. Like there's a project the Indian state has had in Kashmir, and it's varied over time in different ways depending who's in charge. But like. The answers are never that different. Whereas in the Northeast, there are all kinds of answers. Oh, you want autonomous district council? Like, sure, autonomous council is great. Let's let's try that out. Or like, we need to crush this group for a few years. Let's try that and see what happens. Or you want to be a political party? Like, okay, we can see if that works. Or I mean, there's this group, the Revolutionary Government of Nagaland in the late 60s. And like parts of it, when it demobilizes, like become part of the BSF. Like it's just all of this stuff is happening in a way that's much more variable than in, in some other parts of India. Um, so I found it incredibly fascinating it like the level of local expertise you really need to really speak with enormous confidence about it are far beyond what I'll ever have. Um, but as a, a kind of a way of an inspiration for thinking comparatively about how orders can be constructed and, and the politics of all of this, it's, it's really quite fascinating. So your book studies armed, um, armed non-state groups uh, and how they respond. But, um, but I think this can also be applied to assess and understand unarmed groups like trade unions, opposition parties, uh, and religious organizations and how they interact with the state. Um, I'm guessing ideology would matter more for these groups relative to the government in that context, correct? I think so. So the book says like, we should look into this. And so I have not done that work. And so I'm just gonna be wildly speculating here. I think, so, what one of the motivations for the book actually is these cases in which you see governments kind of over or under responding to like you know and i'm using air quotes here for any listeners like objective rational threats and i think you see that in the realm of unarmed actors as well where a government just like cracks down on a set of dissidents with a ferocity that seems totally out of proportion to the like the objective material rational threat they pose right and we see this in regimes like china's that are kind of really go after particular actors in ways that just seem unlinked or unmoored from our standard internal security measures of threat. And I think a lot of what's going on there is this kind of sense of like, what is our politics about and what are the threats to it? What are the kinds of people we can allow to speak in the public sphere? And who are the kind of people we just need to get rid of or who cannot be allowed to operate in mainstream politics, whatever that looks like, because the claims they're making, the demands they're levied are incompatible with what we think our political order needs to be. Right. And so I think you can see this when it comes to trade unions, dissidents, et cetera. Now, I think that has a lot to do with ideology. Right. Um, 
That said, it could vary a lot. It could be electoral coalitions could matter. It could be elite competition within a regime could lead all of a sudden to some factions favored non-state, you know, civil society actors being cracked down on, not for ideological reasons, but a part of like a coalitional purge. So I think in a weird way, you start to, when you move out of the armed conflict environment or the armed actors environment, there are also these other variables that start showing up that maybe are less likely to, to be arising when armed actors are involved. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a really interesting research agenda. It's not really something I'm probably planning on pursuing anytime soon. Uh, but I think there's some really interesting questions about like, what exactly is armed stuff doing? What is violence or its mm -hmm. threat doing? And what is it not? Right? What should we think about armed politics being different than kind of normal politics? And when is it just kind of looking very similar? Um, so you just finished up a series with Milan Vashna at the Carnegie Endowment on the politics of op opposition in South Asia, looking at different actors who are challenging the, the status quo. Um, I'm wondering if you can connect that to to what you just mentioned about these other groups, these unarmed groups. Yeah, so this is an edited volume where we basically asked people, kind of academics, analysts, think tankers, kind of not your like, I guess, people who we think had an ability to bring a different angle than kind of like, mm -hmm. well, what's happening today? Kind of gave them free reign, like write something that you think would be interesting. Um, and so some of the topics are more niche than others. But I think a couple of things come came out of that project that, that are interesting. Um, one that goes back to something I was talking about earlier is just how different contexts are, right? Mm -hmm. What the opposition looks like in country A may just be fundamentally different than in country B. So one of the big points is like, there isn't an opposition. There are a bunch of different oppositions of different kinds, some of which are armed, others of which most of which are not. Um, in terms of these ideological dynamics, I think, you know, it's interesting to think about strategies of state response, right? And in some cases, I think it follows ideological lines very clearly, dissidents are targeted, now in an ever expanding number of ways. It's not just like the old days of a, you know, a knock on the door, but also digital surveillance and repression is something that I don't know nearly enough about, but it's clearly, you know, as these regimes are becoming more and more technologically sophisticated, developing their own tools, buying tools from overseas, borrowing, adapting, kind of finding ways of tracking people and cracking down on them, we see you know, these dynamics that are, you know, obviously really important. That said, something that I think, you know, there are a lot of other variables that are that are going on. One is about the cohesion of these opposition movements themselves, how they how they stand in relation to the system. Some are kind of gray zone actors who are like perfectly happy to do business. They just want a different arrangement, right? Others are internal oppositions, like of let, let me put it this way, they're completely within mainstream politics. And all they want is a different, like they want the deck chairs rearranged. And they want to be sitting in those deck chairs to extend a not very good analogy. Others kind of in this gray zone where they want reforms or changes to structural characteristics of the system, but they're not radically anti-systemic actors. Others are, right? The TTP in Pakistan is an opposition actor, the Pakistani Taliban, right? So we, we have a very interesting piece on it, but it's not what we normally think of as like opposition politics, right? It's not a, a parliamentary party. It's a radical anti-systemic armed group. And so I think you could see this ideological spectrum being applied to some of these actors. Um, in ways that are similar to my book, but also things that are going on about their own cohesion, about their links to elite politics, about their resource generation strategies that I think are, are very different um, because they're operating in this much broader, murkier world of kind of mainstream politics or potentially mainstream politics that gives them different kinds of tools and different kinds of resources. Is the state stronger than ever in South Asia now? I think so. I mean, with, with caveats. So something... So my, like I started studying this stuff in the mid 2000s, like 06, 05, 06, 07, 08, right? That, that period when 
you know, there was dramatic levels of insurgent violence in Pakistan. There was still a lot going on in India. You know, the, the war in Sri Lanka had not yet ended. Um, Myanmar was, Burma was relatively sedate compared to where it is now. But that was a period where internal security threats were really fundamental. And then fusing to the India-Pakistan case with interstate crises, right? Cargill, uh, the 2001-2002 crisis, the Mumbai attack, like this kind of fusion of big IR stuff with nitty-gritty internal or transnational uh, non-state armed group activity. Uh, I wrote something for Carnegie in 2020, I think it was, that was called the you know political violence in South Asia, Poland, the triumph of the state question mark, and looked at quantitative data on violence trends in a bunch of these conflicts. And I think in a lot of ways, the internal there's been an internal security kind of armed buildup. Um, and I've got something coming out, an edited volume chapter looking at India's central paramilitaries, where both the size and the budgetary allocations for these forces have grown dramatically since the late 80s, early 90s, right? There's a huge internal security apparatus that has been constructed and expanded, linked in ways I can't really get good access to, to a broader intelligence apparatus as well. Uh, in India, certainly in Sri Lanka, kind of war made the state, internal war made the state in Sri Lanka, you know, often in very nasty, repressive ways. Pakistan has for many decades now had a very robust, let's call it, and repressive internal security apparatus that right now is having some interesting times, let's put it that way, as, as kind of it really goes after the PTI. Um, and, you know, the Burmese state, in terms of armed mobilization, is now in an interesting place, but had built up dramatically in the 1990s. So I think the state, the coercive arm of the state across the region is much stronger than it used to be. That said, you know, life is not linear. And we've seen the TTP has rebounded in a big way in Pakistan, right? Um, so who knows how that will play out, right? Pakistan has these swirling, overlapping set of crises where it makes it hard to be very confident about state strength there. I think India, Sri Lanka are very different stories. In, in Burma, you could have told a story about the state strengthening. And then they, the military launched the coup in February 2021. And the civil war expands in new ways, it escalates in new ways in a variety of areas. And it's much, very difficult to say the state is stronger now in Burma than it was two years ago or three years ago, right? It's kind of these self-inflicted wounds. So some parts of the region, the state is clearly much stronger. Others, it's kind of shot itself in the foot or, you know, engaged in counterproductive activities or allowed things to happen that now make it weaker than, than it was before. Um, Paul, what was the hardest part of writing the book? So I think there were a few. One was the time challenge I mentioned earlier. Like, how do you carve time out, right? A second was, what is the role of this quantitative data, right? And how much do I want to push it? Like, I'm not. I'm mostly a qualitative scholar, but I like doing simple quantitative stuff. I find it useful to like see things and you know. But how much to push it? How much time to spend on it? When to say, okay, you've got enough here for the book. Let's just move on, right? That was tricky, and had my answers to that went back and forth. Um, Another issue was like, how do I structure this book? Do I do a country by country? In earlier version, it was trying to trace each of these four countries together over time, broken up by different time periods. And I actually had a book workshop that looked like that. And it was a big mess. And they were like, we can't keep track of all these different actors. And like, just tell the story for each country one at a time. You can draw across the chapters as you write them. As we'll see the Pakistan chapter later, this is different in India or, you know, but don't do it all together. So I had to really revise the structure pretty dramatically. So those were some of the things I ran into. Um, and they all combined in various unpleasant ways at different points. Oh, I think. And finally, what are you working on now? 
Yeah, so I am for the time being pretty much done talking about internal security, civil war stuff. I think I've said what I have to say for now. I could totally imagine coming back to it in future. But something that is related to what I've been writing about, but different are, well, let me, let me, let me put it this way. When I was working on this book in particular, I came across a lot of interesting dynamics of like transnational flows of ideas, conflicts, politics that I don't think really mattered that much for explaining the kind of variation I was interested in, but they did help set the political stage for what actors were fighting about. The Cold War in particular showed up in some of these places in a big way. In Burma, there's a big communist party, Burma, that is a major insurgent player for decades. In other places, it just didn't, right? And so this got me interested in this broader question of what and how major power competitions become relevant in the internal politics of, of what I'm calling these third party states, generally smaller countries that are kind of being competed over for influence by the biggest, you know, bigger powers, whether superpowers, global powers, or like regional players. And so now I'm working on a book project about that, kind of when do these geopolitical competitions between major powers get picked up in domestic politics? How did this, does that play out? When is it a big deal? When is it never really a major deal in internal domestic political competition? And when is it kind of in between? So that's what I'm working on now. It's mostly kind of comparative historical, looking at South and Southeast Asia during the Cold War, and then obviously more tentatively at the post-2005 period as U.S.-China competition, and in sometimes in places, India-China competition has kind of entered into the smaller states and kind of what's happened, right? When, when has it been picked up and when has it kind of fallen flat as a domestic political issue? Um, Paul, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. Really appreciate it. And that was Paul Stanland, the author of Ordering Violence, explaining armed group state relations from conflict to cooperation. I'm Karthik Nachipan, and you've been listening to The Lake Podcast. Thank you.